How do humans adapt? How do difficult events and tragedies become part of how we deal with what is in front of us? What determines whether an event demoralizes and weakens a community or whether it strengthens, brings people together? One of the most interesting things that you find when you begin to look at the sort of big patterns of, of resilient communities is that very frequently the communities that are most resilient are the ones that paradoxically have a history of prior disruption. And the reason for that is because the memory of past failure and past disruption is in a critical important, critically important part of readiness and adaptability. That's futurist and author Andrew Zolli, who wrote a book on resilience. To see that process in the eyes of people coping with tragedy, that was the job of Rich Sereno for years when he was deputy administrator at FEMA, and he was on the job during last year's attack at the Boston Marathon. He joins us now along with Kara Miller, host of PRI and WGBH's Innovation Hub. Kara Rich, welcome. Thanks. Thank you. So you've seen the character, the sort of social dimensions of how people respond to a tragedy. What's, what's that like, Rich? And describe, Bill, your experience last year. Well, last year I happened to be here in Boston for the marathon. And one thing that was in, very impressive to look at is to see how people responded, uh, both the first responders and the general public at large. And Boston Strong has come the anthem here, and that is was no accident. It was no accident that people were prepared. It was no accident that not anybody that left the scene alive is alive today. And it was no accident that they all didn't go to the same hospital. It was no accident that they had the right equipment. It was no accident that while everybody was able to respond to the incident, they knew what they were going to be able to do from years of training. How does that training, that knowledge, that sense of shared we know what to do now, this is no drill, how does that play into what happens in the aftermath and the, the, the idea of how communities bounce back? Well, one way to cultivate resilience is to make sure that the people, and, you know, Rich sure talks about this, but the people who are responding are a diverse group of people. So, you know, you had people in the medical community, you had fire, you had police, and in part, you want them to be diverse, both across departments, but also racially and in terms of gender, because you have to think about the people who are being affected by the tragedy, and how are those people going to react? And if you have everybody thinking the same way, you're only going to be able to project for a certain group of people and how they're going to respond. So you want a shared experience, but you yeah. also have to have maximum buy-in of all facets of the community so that people can really be flexible as to the different needs of different communities. You know, that's really right. And people really want to help. I mean, if you think about humans biologically, we are really built to bounce back. I mean, we are built, we evolved in a situation where there were predators, right? And we were trying to deal with that kind of situation and then the next day come back and be fine. So most people in most situations are really, really resilient. And so people are looking for a way to sort of have that resilience kick in. And, and part of that is saying to people, hey, here's what you could do to help and so that they feel active. You know, part of that resilience right here, Kara, is the huge scientific expertise at MIT and Harvard. I mean, they have been a part of the bounce back by exploring, re-exploring the scientific basis of some of the various issues that you've just described. No, that's right. And, and one thing that um, very major studies have found is that people and communities that bounce back before the tragedy ever happens, they have a connection going in. So it might be that they have a very strong connection with a mentor at school. It might be that they have a very strong connection with a family member. It might be that they have a very strong identification with their neighborhood. 
But they go back to that relationship when something traumatic happens. And people who don't have those kinds of pre-existing relationships going into a tragedy have a very, very tough time bouncing back. As an emergency management planner, as someone who worked at EMS here in Boston and with FEMA, how do you build that into policy? How do you determine who's got the toughness and who really needs an extra helping hand at something like this? I think one thing that's important is we have stressed for years that the saying goes, you don't want to be exchanging business cards at the scene of a disaster. And that really goes back to developing the relationships long beforehand. But it goes past just meeting each other. It's also developing trust over time. Uh, The response here in Boston, whether it was uh, Ed Davis or, you know, now Commissioner Billy Evans or Jimmy Hooley, who's currently the chief of EMS, Danny Linsky, superintendent-in-chief, all those people, we knew each other for 20 and 30 years. We have been through some tough times together, both at the public sector, but also some people from the private sector. And it's really bringing, as Tara mentioned, it's really bringing in all the different people together uh, ahead of time so they can develop those relationships of what we call the whole community. So no business cards at the scene of a tragedy. That's great. So when the bombs went off, There's like a checklist in your mind that immediately pops up? Is that what happened to you? I think that's exactly what happens is you start to, you know, first, you you know, it takes a a second or two to register. And, you know, you're hoping that it was just, you know, a propane tank or a transformer fire. But as soon as the second one went off, everybody sort of knew that this was real. This was was exactly what it was. And a lot of people went back to September 11th, though, this is real. Now kick it in. And now your training really kicked in. And there was one point when we were in the West End, you know, this was probably an hour or so after the um, the bombs had gone off and the command post was being formed in the West End. And um, Superintendent-in-Chief at the time, Dan Linsky, said, you know, I was with somebody who they didn't recognize. And who's that? We just pointed over and said it was somebody with me. But other than that, all about 35 or 40 people, the mayor, the governor, the heads of all the department, we all knew each other. And we all knew each other for years. The trauma was the bombing, but it was also the manhunt that went on for a week. Yeah. How is that going to be reflected in the report that you're doing coming up uh, later this week on all this sense of bouncing back here in Boston? Well, I mean, it was an incredible situation. I mean, I just remember it so well. I mean, you had a very new baby, and I was you were basically locked into your house. Now, I think in some ways, you know, to go back to what I said about people being helpful— People in communities enforced that order that the governor gave to stay in your home. So, you know, this was not something that the military – if you were, if you went out onto the street, like nobody – this was not a military state. Nobody was going to turn you back and put you back in your house. So it was really a community. It was individual people who said, you know what? I can be helpful. Like this is the most helpful thing I can do is stay home. And so I think we were all feeling like we were helping emergency management by doing that. And I have to say, when you see Boston bounce back, I think in part it, it is – is because it is a very strong neighborhood sort of place. People have those connections with their neighbors. Um, And you have seen, you know, sort of neighborhood by neighborhood, people feel like, Watertown strong and, and, you know, Southeast strong and that kind of thing. And that, that's what I've seen in the wake of the bombing. And, you know, you think of Boston superficially as like, you know, people who are very independent, who don't, you know, who like lip off to authority, that sort of thing. But these deeper connections, neighborhood to neighborhood is really what rules, you know, the idea that Boston with a reputation for bad driving, there were no cars on the street. Right. During that lockdown. It was amazing. I mean, it, it was, you know, it was like a movie set. I mean, it was amazing. It was a situation where you looked at major highways that are usually so clogged with traffic. And Rich knows this. There was nobody there. Amazing. Well, thanks again to Rich Serino, former deputy administrator at the Federal Emergency Management Agency, and Kara Miller, host of Innovation Hub here at WGBH. Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. 
The 118th Boston Marathon will take place a week from today with thousands of runners from all over the country and globe. And as we've said, the city and its residents have shown resilience. The motto, Boston Strong, this year. We want to hear from you. Give us your story at 877-8MY-TAKE. Bounce back story. Send us a tweet at The Takeaway. Check us out at thetakeaway.org. Thanks so much for listening. I'm John Hockenberry broadcasting from our partners at WGBH Boston Public Radio. This is The Takeaway.